I'm Dr. Brent Schillinger, along with my colleague, Dr. Abby Strauss. We're speaking today about SBIRC and how it fits into the opioid arena. That's screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment. And joining us for this important conversation, Dr. Richard Sates. Dr. Sates is a general internist and addiction medicine specialist. He's a distinguished fellow of the American Society of Addiction Medicine. He is chair and professor of community health sciences at Boston University School of Public Health and professor of medicine at the Boston University School of Medicine. Also, he's associate editor for JAMA and senior editor of the Journal of Addiction Medicine. Dr. Sates, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here and talk to you. Screening for health-related medical problems, you know, you wouldn't think screening would be controversial. But when it comes to experts for illicit drug use, there certainly is controversy. And you are the guy largely responsible for bringing this controversy into the limelight. Give us a little background. The reason that there's some controversy about this is, first of all, screening, I think, often is controversial. Screening for breast cancer is a good example, some of the details around that. And the reason it's controversial in general is that we often think of it as a fairly simple thing to do. But the evidence, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, which I think is the, the respected scientific agency and makes independent screening recommendations, requires evidence that if you screen versus if you do not screen, that you'll get a better outcome. And usually the evidence is at the level of randomized trials of screening versus no screening. And a lot of folks have trouble with that because that's a really high bar to achieve. There are only a limited number of such trials for breast cancer, colon cancer, and all that, because once you think that we can identify this early and do something about it, it makes sense. You don't want to wait for randomized trials. I think screening in general has some element of controversy. Throw into that the idea that we have an opioid use disorder epidemic of overdose deaths and opioid use and the disorder, and that we could identify alcohol use disorder, opioid use disorder, and the range of unhealthy substance use, including alcohol and all other drugs, simply by asking. It seems like a fairly simple and straightforward thing to do. There was the development of brief counseling interventions, shorter version as brief intervention that with a brief intervention, we could move the needle. We could make a difference in talking to a patient briefly and having them change their substance use and related behaviors. Because it is such, in a way, a simple idea seems to make sense. It sort of resonates and people who are trained to do it feel good when they do it. Previously, maybe conversations with people with substance use and substance use disorders may seem very difficult. It makes sense. And because it makes sense, we ask people, we identify them, we have a brief conversation, maybe we refer them to some treatment. How could that not be good? My role <laughs> has been to support the idea, but at the same time to demand some real evidence that it does work. And I can talk a little bit more about why I think it's important that we have a high level of evidence for this, because it isn't as simple as it sounds. Back in 2014, you authored the paper in JAMA, where basically the conclusion there was that in terms of the screening and brief intervention part, there was no efficacy seen in the general practice primary care setting. What were we looking for in terms of the efficacy? Maybe that's the problem here. What, what exactly is the measure? Let me unpack that a little bit, because looking for efficacy of screening and brief intervention would actually require a randomized trial of screening and brief intervention versus no screening. That's a tough one to do, and it's never been done. So unlike colon cancer and breast cancer, where there have been such trials of screening versus no screening, we don't have that. What we have 
are studies like the one that you just mentioned, where we screened everybody in primary care and then randomly assigned them to get a brief intervention. And the key is brief intervention in people identified by screening. I wanna emphasize that because especially in the field of substance use, it makes a big difference whether you have someone who's walking in and saying, I think I might be using substances to my detriment and I'd like to hear what you have to say and then gets counseled versus someone who's coming in for a flu shot or a runny nose or even a preventive health visit whose clinician then asks them some questions about substance use and identifies then that they have unhealthy substance use and then does a brief counseling intervention, that person's response may be quite different. They're caught off guard. They didn't think that's what they were going to talk about. And they think that their substance use is just fine. So it's a harder conversation. What we did in that study was screen everybody. And then for those who had unhealthy drug use, the reason I'm using the word unhealthy drug use is because it's the only term that encompasses the entire spectrum from any drug use. And for alcohol, it would be any heavy drinking. So sort of or risky alcohol use all the way through to disorder. So it encompasses all of that. When you do a screening test, like you do a screening for breast cancer, where you might identify a pre-malignant lesion all the way through to metastatic disease. Here, when we screen, we might identify drug use all the way through to disorder. And when you screen for drug use, many people already are having some consequences. When you screen for unhealthy alcohol use, most people you identify, they're drinking risky amounts, but they don't have a disorder or consequences. When you screen for drug use, most people who report drug use will have a consequence that they can talk about. They'll say, oh yeah, I, this bothered me one time or I didn't wake up the next day easily or it interfered with work or some sort of effect of their drug use. It's different a little bit from screening for unhealthy alcohol use. We screened for un unhealthy drug use and then the intervention was either brief motivational interview or another kind of brief motivational interview, a brief negotiated interview. So one was done by a psychologist, one was done by a trained health educator type person. And to your point, what do you look for in terms of outcomes? We look for use. Does use decrease or do consequences decrease? We found no differences in either of those two. So you would expect that if you're doing brief counseling for somebody who has unhealthy drug use, if you want to achieve something, you'd want to lower their use or frequency of use or any consequences they might have had. And that didn't happen. Now, that was not unique to our study. The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force found in their latest systematic review that there was no effectiveness of brief intervention in people identified as having unhealthy drug use. It raises a very interesting question. Again, I'm a psychiatrist. Yeah. And so I see things a tad differently, but that's okay. That's what makes this hopefully productive discussion. When I was reading all the papers and looking at the history of some of these screening tests, what bothered me is brief intervention in and of itself may be biased against being effective because substance abuse requires the development of new social skills, the development of motivational things, and not just measuring I went from three beers a day to two beers a day or one beer a day. And maybe that was one of the flaws in the design of SPURT, that it was, I don't know, like a dentist trying to say you have to brush your teeth more regularly. Yeah. And, but it doesn't work that way. And that's one of the reasons that even in psychiatry, we have a difficult relapse rate. And it's not from not wanting to try, but there isn't enough time to teach social skills. It, it's, I'm saying the same thing over and over, but it's like a built-in flaw 
I would think, and that may be why there's no predictability or low predictability in terms of outcome, because that's not how it works. How does AA work? AA works because the first day you get up there and you say, take a deep breath and go, you know, I'm an alcoholic. I need help. And it takes a year to put your life together. What you're saying brings up so many issues. First, the idea when you screen, I I think you're right on target to point out sort of different perspectives of who you might see in your office. In a primary care setting, a general health setting, which is what screening is, is designed for, when you screen, you mostly identify people who do not have a disorder. Most of what you just talked about was about people who have a substance use disorder. They're going to be identified and they're going to be included in the people who you identify when you screen. But most people who you identify by screening will not have a substance use disorder or using the older terms, abuse and dependence. They won't have a diagnosis. They won't have a disease. So for people who don't have, who don't meet diagnostic and statistical manual mental disorders, DSM criteria for disorder, they don't have any of those social consequences or other or health, re- repetitive health consequences or role disorders or problems at work or with relationships. All they have is use. So that's the only thing that you can reduce. And if they have one consequence that doesn't meet criteria for disorder, maybe you could affect that. Because of that, this is why it's seen as more a preventive service and why the group evaluating screening and brief intervention is the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. They're really talking about either primary prevention before you've used any substance or secondary prevention where you're preventing any further consequences that would lead to having a disorder. And the place that they're doing it is with clinicians who have lots of other stuff to do besides this, right? They would make the case that we need something quick. I would argue that we don't tell, and this moves on to your points, we don't tell cardiac surgeons that they should do their heart surgeries faster. They should do whatever it takes to do the operation properly. If when you're screening, you don't identify a precancerous breast lesion that just requires follow-up, if what you identify is a tumor that needs treatment, then you treat it. So with SBIRT or screening brief intervention referral to treatment, that's where in theory, the RT comes in. You've now identified someone and you're surprised as the person screening, you say, oh, I didn't just identify somebody with use. I've now identified somebody by my screening. And by the way, after screening, you need to do some sort of brief assessment that tells you that the person doesn't just have risky use, that is use with no consequences. This person has use and consequences, and maybe they even meet criteria for a disorder. When you do that, you have to do one of two things. Esbert tells us that you should refer for treatment. All of the studies of referral for treatment have shown that if you identify somebody by screening and then you refer them, they're really not any more likely to go to treatment than if you hadn't done that. The RT part of ESPERT has been elusive. The other thing you can do, which I believe has been underemphasized by ESPERT and may actually have distracted us for more than a decade, is that you could treat right there and then. If you screen and the person has, let's say, opioid use disorder, why wouldn't you do what you do when you treat hypertension? And you start treating them for hypertension with both, I might add, behavioral and medical treatments for that hypertension. To be able to do the same thing for unhealthy alcohol use if they have alcohol use disorder and the same thing for opioid use disorder. Right there, you could begin treatment. If you don't feel qualified and haven't had the training, get the training yourself or involve someone who knows how to do it. And you're absolutely right that when you identify disease by screening, that that requires much more than simply a brief counseling intervention. Would you say that one of the biggest challenges or biggest problems in the SBIRT process is that we have screening? without adequate long-term follow-up. 
Yes, and not only would I say that, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, in its recommendation, is very unusual for them. They've only done it for one other condition that I'm aware of. They recommend screening. They actually don't recommend SBIRT. They don't recommend screening and brief intervention. What they recommend is screening, and when there are services available to make an adequate diagnosis and to provide proper treatment, that's when you should screen. And if you don't have that, they don't even recommend it. The idea is that the attention then needs to focus or shift to being able to provide adequate treatment for those who have a disease. One of the things that's an issue here is whether we look at substance abuse as a pure disease model or as a psychiatric model. And there's a lot of blurriness in that fence. One of the things that also that I like about the concept of the spur is that it brings it to the table. The person may feel ambushed by, you wouldn't believe what my doctor talked to me about today, but it plants the seed and maybe they will come back and say, hey, doc, you know, last time you asked me, I got to be honest with you. Right. Whether something has efficacy isn't the only reason why we sometimes do something in medicine and in, and in healthcare. I think you're right on that it's one piece, but there are other reasons. And I actually believe, but now I'm not talking about the evidence for screening and brief intervention. Beyond the evidence for screening and brief intervention, there are other reasons why we must identify people with alcohol and other drug use, whether they be general healthcare practices, emergency departments, or the psychiatrist office. I, I can't imagine how you could possibly take care of any psychiatric illness without knowing if the patient had substance use. If somebody has symptoms of anxiety, well, that could be their cocaine use, right? Alcohol withdrawal. In medicine, if you have gastroesophageal reflux, it could be alcohol. If you've got palpitations, it could be cocaine. We need to know for many reasons if we're going to prescribe a medication. And for sure, if we're going to prescribe a pain medication, we've got to know if the person is using substances. I appreciate your point as well, that if we, if we do screen and we make this a common routine care part in general health care, that signals to physicians, other clinicians, policymakers, the general public, that this is a health condition and it needs to be attended to. That could help reduce stigma. That will help improve presumably high quality care. And it may lead patients to recognize that, oh, maybe this is a healthcare clinician to talk to about this. If I have any question, if I want to check and see if it's okay to use cocaine a couple times a week, this is someone I can talk to about it. But I would also point out in this, same, in this same discussion then, it may not be completely benign to screen every single person. The reason I say that is when you get somebody who screens positive, you are now putting potentially an illegal practice or behavior in their medical record, which can be subpoenaed. And if you're a pregnant woman, for example, that is prima facie evidence in some states of criminal child abuse. And that's not the way that we want to be addressing substance use or substance use disorder. That has not been fully worked out yet. You know, what are the consequences of putting, especially for, this is really primarily for illegal drugs. Employers are sometimes interested in uh, records. And, and as you know, medical records separate from psychiatric records are, are even less protected in, in this case. So there have been reports of people having consequences of having such behaviors documented in the records. And I don't think that should primarily drive what we talk about with patients and what we ask patients. It is something, and we know that while screening is valid, that is the tests that we use, which by the way are self-report, 
these are the best tests for screening. We can chat about that a little bit if you like, but those tests are better in research studies where we assure people that no one will get a hold of their results. In the real world, and some of the best data comes from Veterans Affairs hospitals across the country or institutions, it's pretty clear that if you survey people in clinical settings, they report less than if you survey them in a research survey at home. There are issues to be worked out that make it hard to make a universal sort of recommendation, even though I would fully support and strongly support that we must be identifying substance use and disorders. Somewhere along the line in every psychiatric evaluation, those questions have to be asked. And a good medical evaluation is, well, one of the problems we have here in Florida and elsewhere in the United States is with medical marijuana. And the number of people who are using it is quite astonishing. We wanted the medical marijuana state database to be included in the larger Florida state database, because a lot of times people will come and say they're on this, they're on that, whatever, but they don't tell me that they're also taking medical marijuana. So my ability to screen is handicapped by a political process. That makes it very complicated. And I mean, just earlier today, I saw a lady on CBD and it helps her sleep. We all know that people are doing that. But all of a sudden, her mental status changed. So I started pushing her, and she got defensive. The screening is necessary for us to get an idea where we're going. I love the concept of the screening, and I love that it should be more universal. I had a friend of mine, and he asked me, how do I know about all these sexual problems that the patients are having? And my my answer to his question was, I ask. Right. A lot of folks will ask me, well, shouldn't we just be doing urine drug testing or something like that? It really doesn't help, partly because of the limitations of such testing, because usually the testing is limited to recent use and you have to test for specific substances and people sort of don't think that far ahead about it. But the other reason why biological testing for screening is not such a great idea is because the only drug use and alcohol use that you're going to make any headway with is that which the patient wants to talk to you about. And so we have to start by being people that our patients want to talk about this stuff with, and then we can ask, and then they'll tell us what they want us to know. That said, I think you can put alcohol and other drug use in the same list. We ask everybody if they're taking any medications and what medications they're taking. Then we ask them what over-the-counter medications are you taking? And then we ask them what natural or complementary medicines they might be taking. And absolutely cannabis and cannabinoids should be part of that list. One of my colleagues actually, who's an expert in screening and expert in general, recommends, and I think she's right about this, asking a specific question about cannabis. Several reasons for that. So if you are going to ask people about alcohol and other drug use, There are validated tools, either single or three item tools to ask about alcohol. For other drugs, there are a few options, but separating out cannabis is probably a good idea for at least a couple reasons. One is that in studies of brief counseling, cannabis is essentially the only drug which there's some signal that if people seek help and you do several sessions of brief counseling, that they actually will reduce some of some cannabis use. That's one reason. The other reason is it's the most common that you're going to identify in clinical practice. A third reason is that it's beginning to look a little bit more like alcohol, right? That there may be some risky use of cannabis with very little consequence. And then there's cannabis use disorder where people really do meet criteria and run into trouble. And the other complicating factor, which you raise, which is if it is used medically, particularly if it's with a physician recommendation, then you want to know that so you can sort it out, just like if somebody was prescribed any pain medication. Most physicians have not had training in how to do psychotherapy. 
That's fine. When we screen someone for substance abuse, we have to remember and teach the physicians that the patient is screening us, mm. that the patient is going, this guy I can talk to, this lady I can talk to, this one wasn't nice, this one was gentle. And that becomes as powerful as anything else. They are screening us. We cannot forget that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. At some risk, I'm going to ask that, that you shift your terminology, if I can. Okay. And that you not refer to the diagnosis as substance abuse or drug abuse or okay. alcohol abuse. Okay. But it was 23, and I totally understand. I've been doing this for three and a half decades myself. So, uh, yeah. but, but it was 2013, right? When DSM-5 came yeah. in. And so, but it's not, it's not a political correctness thing. It's actually, the reason I asked for that is because it's really more of an accuracy issue that we're trying to separate people out into risky use or disorder, because what you do with someone with risky use is lower their risk. And you mm -hmm. do talk to them about fewer consequences and less use. For someone with disorder, it's more complicated. You may be doing an evidence-based psychotherapy. You may be treating with medications, et cetera. And so separating it into disorder and in use, I think is, is just, it's just helpful. I am comfortably corrected or, <laughs> okay, up, or, or updated, just to say updated. updated. Thank you. Take home message here. What should we be telling the physicians here in Palm Beach County? Say we want the doctors to get involved in this. What's our next step? As I said before, I think it's reasonable as a practice to identify and manage people with alcohol and other drug use disorder. The next question is, how do you do that? And is that the same as ESPERT? And I think we can take a lot of the tools from expert and apply them. So yes, I think it's reasonable for practices to ask standardized screening questions, which means, by the way, not saying, hey, do you use, you know this, you know, but it's for, 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 our, for everybody out there, it doesn't mean saying in a conversational way, hey, do you use drugs or do you drink? If you've ever been asked these questions yourself, how do you answer somebody if you do drink? How do you answer, do you drink? Well, yeah, sure, I drink, I, this is what I do. It means, asking standardized questions, and you can get it down to two or three questions. Actually, even better is self-administered questions. People are more likely to report honestly through self-administered questions in these types of settings. And then looking at the answers and talking to patients about it. If they need more help after you talk to them a little bit about it and you find out, oh, they may have disorder, I need to talk to them about treatment, or I'm going to refer them for treatment, that is the next step. What I describe right now is essentially expert done well. The problem is when you get down to the details of, will I really do that every single time someone comes in or how often or where, when are we going to do that? How are we going to do it? Who's going to do it? These things begin to get a little complicated. The next piece that I think really needs to be known by everyone who we're asking to do this is to not set their expectations too high. Because in this controversy of does expert work, in general, what people are told, what clinicians are told is, yeah, this is great stuff. It's the best thing since sliced bread. You should do expert and we're going to solve all the problems. And as Abby said, we know when people tell us that, that that cannot be the case. Because we've all met people who have substance use disorder, and we know that that expert is not going to solve substance use disorder. So don't expect that even for those without the disorder, that is for those with risky use, that they're going to decrease their use the next time you see them. Don't expect that if they have disorder, suddenly they're going to be cured and better. It's not going to happen after a brief intervention. So while it is a reasonable practice and we do it, we should be doing it. 
because we need to know this information about our patients in order to treat them, diagnose other diseases, and identify disorder, and refer that for treatment or treat it itself if we can. All that is great, but don't have the expectation that screening and brief intervention is somehow, frankly, going to impact the opioid overdose death epidemic. The largest study that the National Institute on Drug Abuse, and it's still in their name, so it's that, that NIDA, or National Institute on Drug Abuse Funds, is including all evidence-based practices to try to reduce the opioid overdose death epidemic. SBIRT is not one of those that's included. The reason is that the distance from screening everybody in a health system to reducing opioid overdose deaths is massive. You've got to screen, identify people with disorder, get them into treatment, get them into effective treatment, have that treatment be effective, and then ultimately reduce. Right? So it's a very distal intervention to do. Again, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be identifying and we shouldn't be ignoring this problem, but we shouldn't be thinking that it's going to solve the problem. In that context, what would be the most appropriate settings in which to do the screening? I think it is reasonable to do so in primary care settings and emergency departments in that context. That is, knowing that that screening and brief counseling isn't going to solve the issue, but it's an opening, and that it may help you in initial diagnosis and treatment. And there may be the person who gets it in the back of their mind and then comes back and requests treatment or goes home and seeks treatment. And in emergency departments, there's often something tied to their substance use that can be discussed and the back of their mind if it doesn't make an immediate impact. It's incumbent on us to comment on it with patients that if we do see something, that we should say something. In other settings where the prevalence is much higher, and that would be mental health settings, I don't think of it as expert because something Abby said. Abby said, well, in any normal routine psychiatric assessment, of course we ask about these things. How could we not? I think in mental health settings, because the prevalence is so high of substance use, you need an assessment for substance use and any consequences, not a screening. Remembering that when I say screening, we're talking about asking questions of people who have no sign or symptom related to what we're asking about. And that does happen in general health settings, preventive care settings, where no symptoms, no signs, you screen and boom, you identify somebody who's drinking, too heav drinking heavily or using drugs. Since we are in the time of COVID, we need yeah. to, you know there's been a big increase in terms of overdose incidents, of overdose-related deaths. Is there any silver lining, though, from some of the new practices that we've moved into during the era of COVID in terms of the opioid epidemic? I think most people would say that ability to begin buprenorphine treatment during a telehealth visit. Now, this is for already for people who, obviously, for people who have a disorder. If that can stay after the epidemic, that would be positive. That is, if after the COVID epidemic is over someday, that there are expanded or loosened regulations around prescribing of buprenorphine, that may well help. I think ESPERT has taken a big hit during the pandemic. The reason for that is that a lot of the pre-visit in general health settings, primary care settings, things that would happen before your visit with a doctor aren't happening because you're not sitting in a waiting room. And with a telehealth visit in your doctor, you're sort of going right in to, to do whatever that visit is about. Although self-administered questionnaires can certainly been, be done, the time and effort to put those into clinical systems hasn't happened in many places. If you're looking for silver linings, it may force us to do that and, and put some of these self-administered questionnaires 
in line, meaning part of the routine practice, regardless of whether it's an in-person or a telehealth visit. There's been some decreases in substance use in, in some populations, and that's in people who use in social circumstances. For people who largely drink, for example, at parties or bars, that decreased, whereas those who have co-occurring mental health conditions or are particularly affected in terms of their mental health by the pandemic, then substance use has increased. The recognition that there can be different reasons for why people use substances may be another little bit of a silver lining here in thinking maybe we ought to do a little bit more about mental health to try to address both mental health and substance use in an integrated way at the same time and recognizing that they're not totally separate things. They occur in the same person. Well, this has been a most informative conversation. I'm glad. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks.